Hi, friends. It's great to be back with you. This is my last podcast from Wyoming. I'll be traveling back home to North Carolina soon. Welcome to the last quarter phase of the Thunder Moon. We touched on that last time. We talked about this being a moon of declaring ourselves. And in the last podcast, we dove into more conversation about how to invoke the imagination and the quantum dynamic of the psychological life to affect change. So really a place of interiority for creating change as opposed to externally creating change. Um, If that's of interest to you, you'll definitely want to check out the last two podcasts because they're part of a series that I'm doing. I just wanted to pause on that series and and dive in a bit to a story about the sea um, because I created another archetypal collection on my website if you have visited that before at lorigreen.net and I have goods and products for home and for soul that are sustainable, artisan made, um, indie supported collections based on an archetype. And I just wanted to share some thoughts about the sea since that's my current collection, the sea and the ocean, and talk about some archetypes inspired by those themes. But we will return to the quantum, imaginal, archetypal way of affecting change. We'll continue on in that series as soon as I get back to Asheville because there's so much great, juicy work going on there. Um, I'm teaching it, I'm learning it, I'm living it, and I love sharing it, and people are finding it really helpful. So we'll dive back into that in the next podcast. But like I said, we are in the Thunder Moon. We are contemplating the mysteries of the sea, which is the archetypal collection I'm talking about on my website right now. And I just want to touch on the full moon poetry and the waning moon poetry I wrote regarding the thunder moon because we've just passed through the full moon phase and are now going into the last quarter. And it's good to come into some kind of awareness about our relationship with declaring ourselves, making our presence known. And the great irony of that for me is the older I get, the more I see that a really intentional, alert, conscious silence, if you will, is the most effective. And that's really different than a a silent treatment, you know, sort of that old passive aggressive idea of giving someone the silent treatment. What I'm meaning is I'm learning that if I don't react to things, I get the gold that's happening in the situation. If I react, I usually get another round of that lesson. So I'm learning bit by bit to be more skillful with how I declare myself. I might not like what's happening in the external world, but my discipline now is to observe it and to make the shifts internally about who I am in relationship to that. And if I need to let myself out of a preconceived idea I have about myself, I do that so that I can be more responsive. And that's what's driving the change in my life right now. And 
will carry on in the future. I know this is actually how I create change now. And so it's really interesting that the Thunder Moon is uh, traveling with us in this exploration because it's about declaring ourselves. And declaring ourselves isn't necessarily just running at the mouth and expressing every thought, you know, stream of consciousness you have. It's not that at all. Sometimes we need to speak, for sure. But speaking consciously and speaking unconsciously are two very different things. And I know um, unconscious speaking is very um, counter counterproductive. Let's just say that. It causes more problems than it solves. So with that, um, the full moon poem I have to share with you, I actually wrote um, based on the inspiration of a mob of wild horses. So that was the inspiration for this. And it goes like this. Thunder of hooves, hot pursuit, mob of brumbies. Lead stallion, black as the void, wild and suffering. Shakespearean pause. At one with the mount, set matters square. Meet the shadow, release a destiny. Commit, leap to the unknown, cry out, authenticity. The presence of a horse, of thunder and calm. And with that, I'll follow with the thunder moon, waning moon. It's very short. Integrate the thunder. Integrate the space between. Integrate the voice, integrate the hush, integrate the felt presence, integrate the need for nothing at all. And as I come into more expression of my own authenticity, I touch on that sometimes, and it's the most beautiful moment of my day or, you know, if it lasts for, you know, several hours is to touch that place in ourselves that has never been harmed, that has never known anything but love, that sees clearly and has no need for anything at all because it is all. It's that divine, wild, free nature that each of us has underneath all of the stories that we've lived. And to touch on that part of ourselves and to live from that space is really to be able to create the life of our dreams. And we'll keep talking about that in the days and weeks ahead. But today I want to share this beautiful story. Um, I wrote a paper about three years ago on the mythical figure of Melusine, and she is a mermaid for all intents and purposes. And there was a legend um, in Celtic France, the Celtic part of France um, in Brittany, that was written way back in 1393. So this myth has been with us a long time. And it's such an incredible story. And when I'm talking about the archetype of the sea itself, Jung definitely associated the sea with the unconscious. And so oftentimes I don't like to say, hey, if XYZ appears in a dream, it means this. 
but the sea or the ocean is one exception I make to that. Usually, if that's appearing in the dream, you are in touch with the deep, unknowable, teeming with life and energy unconscious, the psyche itself. And so to have this archetype of the wild, untamed, mysterious sea um, is is no small thing. And, and this story about a creature who navigates both land and sea is really interesting because it gives us guidance about how we too can dip into our subconscious waters, our psyche, and bring the fruits of that labor home to our everyday outer world experiences. And so I, I look forward to sharing this article I wrote and I entitled it The Alchemy of Her Sensibilities and Exploration of Melusine. And I'll just share it with you and we'll talk about it as we go. I'll interject my thoughts as I read along. I start with the quote, I must be a mermaid, Rango. I have no fear of depths and a great fear of shallow living. And that was written by Anais Nin. In classical mythology, the sirens were famous for their otherworldly, mesmerizing song, seducing sailors to their death. The first depictions were often half-woman, half-bird, but their relevance to the sea allowed for the evolution of their features to half-woman, half-fish. Graham noted that in numerous Romance languages, the word for mermaid is derived from siren. Thus, a vibrant interplay of the terms mermaid, siren, and all their slippery definitions ensued and confounds to this day. The mysterious Melusine, yet another incarnation, refuses to be pinned down. And yet, a medieval tale was written about a specific mermaid, Melusine, which provides a fascinating window into what her nature imparts. Author Jean Deray's Melusine, or The Noble History of Losing None, is divided into two parts. The first part of the story centers around Pressine, the second on her daughter, Melusine. Both mother and daughter struggle with the duality of their fairy and human natures, and both ultimately encounter similar betrayals that dramatically shape their characters. But remarkably, Daré's tale reflects a shift of the times in which he wrote, for the females also impose ethical standards and require social adjustments from their husbands. While the focus of this talk will be primarily on Melusine's story, the two tales nevertheless rely on each other. Knapp wrote, quote, "...occult yet vitreous, audible although silent, static despite their motility, Pressine and Melusine were, like many archetypal figures, a complex of opposites who, although living in the Middle Ages, survive in our contemporary city jungles and dwindling forests. End quote. This talk will reveal a dance between external achievement and authentic interiority, exploring Melusine's outer successes as compared to her inner tending to a powerful otherness. I will ultimately reveal how the betrayal of Melusine and her resulting forgiveness fuel the alchemy not present in her mother's tale, enhancing her modern relevance. The first section is called Aware of Her Attributes. The stage is set. 
Before encountering Melusine, it is necessary to touch on Pressine's tale. It begins with King Alinus of Albany mourning the death of his wife. In his forest hunting and wandering, he is hypnotized by the angelic music of Pressine, the beautiful woman who attends the fountain deep within the woods. She is no ordinary woman, for she inexplicably knows his name. Transfixed, he seeks to marry her, but Pressine demands her own terms be met. Alinus must promise never to visit or look at her during her, quote, lying in or childbirthing period. How unexpected that the feminine force in a medieval tale would, without apology, assert her own intentions and expectations. Knapp uses the empowering phrase, quote, aware of her attributes in describing Pressine's stance. Pressine and Alinus marry, enjoying both great prosperity and a loving relationship. The author speaks to the psychological dimensions of this phase of the tale when he wrote, quote, Like druid priests and poets and knights of old, Alinus, the hunter, entered his shadowy forest world on horseback, happened upon a fountain, and suddenly grew thirsty for want of its spiritual, psychologically nurturative and regenerative power. From the depth psychological perspective of C.G. Jung, Alinus has touched his anima or soul image. And while this is occasion for celebration, the tale nevertheless turns into betrayal. While their union produces three beautiful daughters, Melusine, Melior, and Palatine, Alinus, at the urging of his grown son, breaks his promise, peeking in on the newborns. Pressine responds with wrath whisking her girls away to the island of Avalon, blaming Alinus for all their suffering as they grow up. Melusine, strong-willed and gifted, at first identifies with her mother's perspective and ultimately carries out vengeance against her father. But instead of receiving her mother's praise, Melusine is cursed. The story goes, You, Melusine, who are the eldest and should be the most understanding, I know very well that you instigated that harsh imprisonment of your father, and so you shall be the first to be punished. The power of your father's seed would eventually have drawn you and your sisters towards his human nature, and you would soon have left behind the ways of nymphs and fairies forever. But I proclaim that henceforth, every Saturday, you shall become a serpent from the navel down, If, however, you find a man who wishes to marry you and will promise never to look upon you or seek you out on Saturday and never to speak of this to anyone, you shall live out your life as a mortal woman and die naturally. So goes the mother's curse. A fascinating binary is cast in the form of this curse, Melusine's otherness versus her humanity. Arguably, Pressine's behavior reveals a lack of compassion, Will Melusine perpetrate the same fate? The stage is now set for Melusine's alchemical story. And first we'll explore her external success. Melusine immediately goes on her way. Knapp reflected that, quote, because she had become emotionally divested of her personal mother, it may have accounted for her choice in settling in the domain of the great mother. We have returned to the realm of the sacred fountain, the eternal spring, Jean de Ray's story weaves a similar plot where Raymondine, grieving over the death of his beloved uncle, finds anima and soulful healing presence in the form of the enchanting Melusine. Like her mother, 
Meluzine commands a promise that her husband will not look at her on Saturdays. In exchange, they will enjoy a fabulously wealthy and loving life together. A lavish wedding ensues. Meluzine's accomplishments knew no bounds. Castles, churches, towers, towns, and fortresses sprung up overnight as if by magic. Knapp offered this glorious passage. Meluzine's fortified cities were built to contain the protecting and nurturing aspects of the archetypal mother within them. Her secret knowledge enabled her to lay the foundation of future fiefdoms for her husband and progeny. Her earth and celestial-oriented understanding endowed her with the potential of transmuting human energy into higher, purer, and more spiritually directed works. Because of her capacity to maintain the castles, towers, monasteries, and other fortifications she had constructed, peasants and animals alike could take refuge in her fiefdoms. Indeed, she was, in all senses of the word, a head of state. Again, not only is this flourishing of a medieval woman important to note, there is evidence to suggest Melusine has shifted psychologically from Prestine's perspective to that of the great mothers. Additionally, Melusine is a devoted, nurturing mother to ten sons and teaches them how to be successful. Remarkably, eight of the sons display a deformity of one kind or another— but these traits are overall embraced by the people as amazements rather than ominous signs of the unnatural. Melusine and Raymondine's last two children are mark-free, revealing the integration of Melusine's humanity over time. All of this outward success conveys a largesse, a swift command, an unapologetic mastery of her world. And yet, Melusine's humanitarianism is ever-present throughout Daré's narrative. That these vast, great deeds are accomplished due to her otherworldly nature does not diminish her stature in the least. Indeed, the sensibility might well be to access one's inner resources and gifts to properly fuel manifestation. Melusine is quite literally a force of nature, and yet the mystery of her Saturday ritual is calling. How authentic is a life well-lived if an essential part of one's own nature must remain hidden? Knapp said, quote, May it be said as well that to penetrate her city's portals was tantamount to entering the inner sanctuary of a living mystery, its arcana being known to Melusine alone. The time has now arrived for the hidden to be seen. There's a term in Jungian psychology called enantiodromia, which refers to the psychological reality that sooner or later everything turns into its opposite— At this point in the tale, the unconscious comes crashing through, exposing the mysteries of Melusine. Little is mentioned in DeRay's tale about Melusine's tending to her Saturday ritual. It's all very curious. In recounting the curse, or shall we say blessing, Pressine inflicted on her daughter, Melusine's otherness is brought into sharp relief. She must attend to her fairy nature each week. Melusine devotes her Saturdays to bathing, complete with her lavish tail, and being alone. Of the sensibility of aloneness, Estes offered, solitude is not an absence of energy or action, as some believe, but is rather a boon of wild provisions transmitted to us from the soul. In ancient times, as recorded by physician healers, religious, and mystics, 
Purposeful solitude was both palliative and preventative. It was used to heal fatigue and to prevent weariness. It was also used as an oracle, as a way of listening to the inner self to solicit advice and guidance otherwise impossible to hear in the din of daily life. End quote. Additionally, the very image of a half-woman, half-serpent fish conjures the symbolic connection of being at home both on land and in the sea, in the manifest world and in the unconscious. Psychologically, we are in the terrain where one's wound travels closely with one's gift. Hillman said, We hover in puzzlement at the border where the true depths really are. Rather than an increase of certainty, there is a spread of mystery, which is both the precondition and the consequence of revelation. The mystery of Melusine's true nature can clearly be seen as a boon in terms of her ability to be of two worlds. But betrayal often attends this threshold space as well. The matrilineal pattern of commanding a husbandly promise appears to constellate the very betrayal Pressine and Melusine are seeking to avoid. It is helpful to look at betrayal, then, from another vantage point, the inciting incident for alchemy. In referencing Adam and Eve, Hillman said, If we take this tale as a model for the advance in lie from the beginning of things— then it may be expected that primal trust will be broken if relationships are to advance, and moreover that the primal trust will just not be outgrown. There will be a crisis, a break, characterized by betrayal, which according to the tale is the synchronon for the expulsion from Eden into the real world of human consciousness and responsibility. Hillman goes on to say the ultimate betrayal we really fear is self-betrayal. Melusine's exposure will serve more than one awakening. Not only does Melusine have the opportunity to accept her nature more fully and know forgiveness, something her mother was unable to do, but Raymondine can become his own man. Knapp wrote that Melusine considered her serpentine personality a humiliation. This is opposed to Isis and Hecate and Ishtar who displayed their otherness for all to see. But as previously mentioned, Melusine's last two births did not result in deformity, indicating that psychologically she's integrating. Deray's revealed when Raymondine gazed upon Melusine in her bath, through the aperture, Raymond could see everything in the room, including Melusine in the basin. Here, combing her hair, was a woman who from the navel down took the form of a massive serpent's tail, extremely long and as thick as a herring keg, and splashing the water so hard that it splattered the vaulting of the chamber, Raymond was suddenly overcome with remorse. Ah, he lamented, my love, at the wrongful behest of my brother, I have betrayed you and broken the promise I made you. Raymond Dean does not recoil at her. And though Melusine knows he has seen her, she does not at first let on. She does not enact the immediate rage leveled a generation ago by Pressine. Only when tragedy involving one of their children provokes Raymondine to publicly reveal his wife's serpentine nature is the betrayal acknowledged. Raymondine is presented with his own alchemical opportunity here. Through the course of their marriage, his wife's accomplishments have dwarfed his own. 
Knapp posed that, quote, whether Melusine's wisdom and libido, her psychic energy, stultified Raymondine to the point of impeding his emotional development, we don't know. Was he destined to remain forever a puer eternus because of Melusine's formidable powers? Though he has been a loving partner, their relationship has not reflected the radiance of a powerful union of equals. Raymondine was always in deference to Melusine. That is, until now. Jung wrote, quote, The only person who escapes the grim law of enantiodromia is the man who knows how to separate himself from the unconscious. Though traumatic, the betrayal sets a balancing into motion. The symbolism of the snake is often linked to alchemy itself, and though Melusine and Raymondine do not escape the enantiodromia of their situation, one could argue that a sensibility Melusine offers is the ability to increasingly anticipate when such psychic movements are about to take place. Indeed, she is growing in the consciousness of seeing herself without apology. The Alchemy of Forgiveness My sweet friend, replied Melusine, seeing the tears streaming from his eyes so abundantly that all his chest was wet with them, May he who is the true omnipotent pardoner and the fount of all pity and mercy pardon you. As for myself, I forgive you with all my heart. Melusine's emotional alchemy in the form of pure forgiveness is followed by her awe-inspiring transformation into a fifteen-foot dragon. She leaps out the castle window and circles mournfully over the castle three times, shrieking her lament. At night, she returns to nurse her youngest children, but Raymondine never sees her again. Estes speaks at length about the stages of forgiveness. She identifies four psychological movements. To forgo, which means to leave it alone. To forbear, to abstain from punishing. To forget, to aver from memory, to refuse to dwell. And to forgive, to abandon the debt. In the fairy tale absence of conventional time, Melusine's forgiveness seems instant, but we nevertheless witness in the nature of Melusine the emotional fullness of this cycle. This is what saves her story from ultimate tragedy, for she moves beyond the rage demonstrated by her mother a generation ago. Estes powerfully stated, Forgiveness is an act of creation. While each individual must decide what entails forgiveness within a unique context, the finality is clear. You are free to go. You may not have turned out to be a happily ever after, but most certainly there is now a fresh once upon a time waiting from this day forward. Yes, Melusine is bereft at having to leave, but her presence still attends those she loves and her legacy carries on. Jung comments on Melusine and Raymondine's tale himself. He notes the necessity of Melusina returning to the watery realm if the work is to reach its goal. He emphasizes that the partners must integrate what has been unconscious by the one-sidedness. Then, he says, from this union arises that wholeness which the introspective philosophy of all times and climes has characterized with an inexhaustible variety of symbols, names, and concepts. It is an experience that simply cannot be reproduced in words. 
but whose very nature carries with it an unassailable feeling of eternity or timelessness. To this numinous passage, we could add the profound statement of Hillman, who, in regard to therapy, stated that, quote, the end of analysis coincides with the acceptance of femininity. Raymondine has now begun this process. Melusine has achieved it. Iconography of Melusine. A fascinating disconnect I encountered while researching Melusine is that why Deray's tale does not describe her tale as twin in nature, nevertheless, Numerous examples of iconography specifically linked to Melusine illustrate her tale as two. Following this trail, Graham wrote an engaging article that connects Melusine to Earth Mother, Pisces, and the Two-Tailed Mermaid. Indeed, to look upon the woodcuts and amulet gems and various artistic representations of the two-tailed posture is to boldly gaze at the feminine figure either in childbirth or coitus. This has powerful resonance for Melusine's story, because not only has the connection been made to her prolific manifestation, her mother-earthness in this sense, but the very nature of the two belonging to the one is also an additional alchemical reference. Indeed, the simple dictionary offers the same dual nature symbolism is also at work in alchemy, which employs the siren as a more benevolent emblem of enlightenment, the siren of the philosophers. Alchemically, the siren's two tails represents unity of earth and water, body and soul, and the vision of universal Mercury, the all-pervading anima mundi that calls out and makes the philosopher yearn to her. It remains a mystery why the original written version of Melusine does not detail this aspect of her tale. Nevertheless, Jung's transcendent function a manifestation of the energy that springs from the tension of the opposites and the alchemy of Melusine's outer and inner spheres blossoming into the consciousness of forgiveness are clear. Further thoughts, Graham's scholarship connects the two-tailed fish not only to the astrological Pisces, but also to the tarot card La Lune, the moon. Gad ties the tarot meaningfully to alchemy. She says, in the alchemical tradition, the whitening appears after the negredo phase has been overcome. In the silver light, feelings are transformed and the divided returns to unity. The alchemist said that the solutio takes place in the moon, a statement that corresponds to the dissolving, dark, irrational side of the moon with its dangerous potential for dismemberment. One aspect of the Dionysian solutio is the orgiastic instinctual immersion that expresses the yearning of the lonely, alienated ego for containment in a larger whole, in a desire to reestablish the lost connection with fellow humans. The moon is not only an agent of negative or dangerous solutio, it is also the source of dew, of fertilizing moisture, of healing and growth and it is identical to the aqua permanens. This passage mirrors Melusine's alchemical forgiveness and return to her wondrous unity. Even though her humanity laments, the process has resulted in emotional redemption. How amazing Melusine's iconography has been shimmering about us all this time, symbols now even more mesmerizing for our deepening understanding of her nature.
a modern relevance, an exploration of Melusinian qualities would not be complete without a final nod to one of her most visible modern incarnations, the Starbucks logo. The company emphasizes that they wish to, quote, capture the seafaring history of coffee in Seattle's strong seaport roots, which led to the discovery of a two-tailed mermaid woodcut. They named her Siren. The founders were drawn to her seductive mystery, and they sense her presence as they make decisions. All of Melusine's sensibilities are present, the profound ability to build an empire and legacy, the ineffable feminine, the alchemy of a brand that seeks to serve beyond its financial bottom line, be that with environmental awareness or corporate social responsibility, fair trade, or employee opportunities. Quote, she's a promise too, inviting all of us to find what we're looking for, even if it's something we haven't even imagined yet. There's little improving on that. So in conclusion, a Melusinian sensibility is to know one's gifts, to be aware of your own attributes, and to unapologetically launch these gifts into the world of manifestation. And yet, to travel in the mermaid way is also to attend to your otherness, the mystery, the unknowable, and acknowledge it as the very source of your power. Finally, the resulting alchemy of having a footing in both worlds results in unexpected yet liberating alchemy, a redemption that moves consciousness forward deeper and higher. The Siren's Call, not in the destructive ways of long ago, but in the quickening of a time ripe for transformation. So I just find it so serendipitous that our conversation about how to create via the imagination, being in touch with the psyche, and the thunder moon cycle that we find ourselves in, asking how do we effectively declare ourselves, and then this story of the mermaid, of the sea, of Melusine, and how she navigates both worlds and creates the alchemy for transformation. I find the serendipity, the synchronicity of all of those threads coming together really powerful. This is stuff I cannot make up or predict, but I wanted to share that with you today. And I hope next time you see the Starbucks logo, which is often in our world, that you remember that personal transformation and alchemy that is available to each of us in our own psyches. I'll close with some music for you to contemplate your otherworldly nature, and I look forward to talking to you next time. Take good care.